From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show on what women really want. No, it's not a redo of the Mel Gibson, Helen Hunt rom-com. We're going to learn what women tell each other about their professional experiences and the issues that are most correlated with women's workplace satisfaction, success, and longevity. Benefits, compensation, work culture, and advancement. Just a few of the critical issues, never mind sexual harassment, diverse leadership, and flex time. Helping us unpack all of this today is Georgine Huang, the innovative CEO and founder of Fairy God Boss, which reaches over 750,000 people per month. On it, women share their workplace experiences in the form of authentic job reviews and discussion board posts. They give advice to each other about how they've navigated their careers, work-life balance, and can search for jobs with employers that actually believe in gender equality and make it visible. And along with this rapidly growing community, they've amassed this incredible data set, which they summarize each year in a really illuminating annual report. They are a thriving example of how women can not only create innovative new businesses, but that they are an instructive arena in which women can actually help each other. So I'm delighted to welcome their CEO and founder, Georgine Huang, to the program. She's the co-founder of Fairy God Boss. But before we begin, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Georgine is admittedly obsessed with improving the workplace for women. Fairy God Boss was born in 2015 when Georgine was interviewing while two months pregnant and hiding it. Previously, she ran the enterprise business at Dow Jones and was a managing director at Bloomberg Ventures. She's a graduate of Cornell and Stanford Universities, but we'll welcome her with open arms here today at Wharton anyhow. So with that, Georgine, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Georgine, two months pregnant, you're engaged in a dynamic workplace. Why'd you create Fairy God Bus? Well, I guess it all started with a bad day at work. (laughs) I walked into my job and found out that my manager, who was the CEO at the time, was fired. That's never a good thing when your manager's <laughs> fired. So a couple of weeks later, I too found myself fired and I was part of a management shakeup at the very top. And that was not a good thing, but it was particularly awkward because I was pregnant. And when you're two months pregnant, you're not obviously showing. And so nobody knew about it. And so at that point, what were the layers of fear that you had? Because I think for a lot of women, two months pregnant, you're not ready to be out of the workplace if it was ever your intention at all. Yeah, and I already had a child, and so I knew what it meant to be a mom at work, and I wasn't planning on stopping um, my job because I was going to have a second child. I was really worried about going on interviews and telling people or not telling people that I was pregnant because if I didn't tell people and then I got a job, I would look maybe dishonest Mm -hmm. for not having disclosed that. If I did tell people, maybe I wouldn't get hired in the first place because they might think I wasn't very committed to my job because I was a mom. Right. There was no winning either way you sliced it. No, and I, I was very. It's a very awkward topic to bring up in a job <laughs> interview, and so I, I wasn't planning on doing it at all. But you know, I thought the more I went on these interviews, the more indignant I felt about it. Like, why should I have to hide this? I knew the reasons why, but I didn't. 
want to. And so um, I went online when I couldn't find information about maternity leave policies, which I was very interested in learning, and, and discovered that almost no companies really publish that information. So that was, you know, the first thing I did was turn to the Internet and discover there wasn't very good information for people like myself. And so what's interesting is that in your case, if it had a company had their maternity leave policies posted, that actually could have been a useful recruitment device for you. Yeah, I would have just felt much more comfortable about it. I didn't want to ask about it, but it was clearly very relevant to me. And I was surprised and started like really researching the reasons why companies didn't publish it. And it turns out it's a, it's a bunch of different things from not having particularly great policies to mm-hmm. being stuck in sort of a legal situation of not wanting to commit to something that didn't apply to all employees, for example. Wait a second. Unpack that a little bit for me. Well, parental leave policies differ by country. So if you're a global con- company, then you know you don't want to get into this is what we offer in France, and this is what we mm. offer in the UK, this is what we offer in the United States and in Brazil. But beyond that, there's exempt employees and non-exempt employees, meaning hourly versus salaried employees. And then there's union employees for those companies for whom that applies. Therefore, it gets incredibly complicated to publish what sounds otherwise like a very simple thing. Right. And it could mislead people who are trying to get useful information. That's right. Okay. So you're finding yourself, you're two months pregnant, you're fired, you're doing research, and you're seeing a real paucity of information out there. How did you move from there to being a co-founder of a startup? So I used to look after a product team. And so my mind is all around products that help users and um, businesses. And, And so I just thought as an experiment, I would launch a site on the side to see whether women would share information like this with each other. But beyond just maternity leave policies, I was interested in whether a company was a good place for working moms, whether it was a good place for women to advance into management roles in general, whether there were women in management. That was another tough topic that I didn't want to bring up in job interviews. For mm-hmm. fear, of, fear of looking really like I was a troublemaker for even asking that question or being interested in that question. Um, which is a re- it, which is silly, its own, it doesn't sound silly. It's actually an unfortunate reflection of a reality that women face in the workplace, and that um, if you were a male candidate asking about any other benefit or um, component of advancement at the organization, you would be seen as appropriately curious. But right. this is loaded in a lot of complicated ways. Mm-hmm. And I think I. I say a troublemaker because it's sort of you're worried that there's going to be someone on the other end of that question who's thinking, well, this woman is, you know, a hard charging feminist that needs to see diversity or cares about that in a a particular way more than she cares about doing her job really well and achieving a lot. (laughs) Why isn't that you can care about both? I think you can, but you're just not sure who on the other side of the table, you know, is going, how how they're going to be seeing that question. Right. I don't mean to be overly glib about it. It's a real concern that um, the kind of activism that's reflected in that can be viewed as a negative. That's right. Okay. And so you realize, you decide to develop this side site um, with this very particular audience. How did you start getting activity on the site? Well, initially, I looked to other women's organizations. And as you know, there are many, many, many women's organizations. There's trade organizations, professional organizations, um, women in business school who get together. Mm -hmm. So I 
I found all of these organizations to be natural allies, and because what we're doing doesn't cost any money, I thought, well, why not just share it with these women's organizations and see what the reaction is? So that's how we initially got started, and it really wasn't, you know, marketing money at work here. It was really testing the idea that women would want to share this information with each other. And so as you started to get these women's voices engaged online, what did you start to learn? Well, I was really worried initially that the only people who would talk about their job experiences might be overly positive or overly negative. And I have that reaction because I've seen a lot of other kinds of review sites, so restaurant reviews on Mm -hmm. Yelp or Amazon reviews, and you sort of see or worry that the people who are leaving comments aren't representative of the, you know, the typical person. But I, I realize that the way you ask for information really matters when dealing with that sort of concern. So we don't ask people just an open-ended question, tell us what it's like to work somewhere. We specifically say, what would you tell another woman about working there? Would you recommend the company to other women? And a, a number of other sort of structured ways of asking for information that lead to more balanced um, answers and information. So that you were able to um, still get their authentic voices, but in a structured way that would lead to useful information that could be compared. That's right. When we ask people, why why did you leave such useful information in this job review? The, the typical answer, 80% of women tell us that they share to help other women. So they're really doing it for altruistic reasons and not because they're there to vent or they had a you know very extreme experience one way or another. I, I hate to ask, but how is this – how do you see yourself positioned against Glassdoor? Because when I think about this particular advocacy, that's one distinction. Are there any others that would help people understand how you use these different sites if you want information? Yeah, we are big fans of Glassdoor. I mean, I think we really <laughs> paved the way in terms of leading um, – leading to employee transparency, and every employee is a consumer. And so, you know, I think these days the lines of what role you play when you're looking at a brand or a company are really blurred. We think that Glassdoor has done a tremendous job in making um, salary information available. They've been at it for 10 years, so, you know, they've learned a lot. But what we do is ask 15 different questions about your specific experience as a woman, which nobody really mm-hmm. does on Glassdoor. Glassdoor sort of assumes nothing about you. And I think when you don't ask certain questions, you don't get certain answers. And so essentially what you're getting when you come to Fairy Godboss versus Glassdoor is answers to the questions that women ask. And the questions that we ask women in their job reviews are questions that our community and employer partners that we've worked with care about. So oh. it's, it's a particular set of com- questions. Yeah, that are incredibly important to how we make decisions and navigate this landscape. So I'm still fascinated by how you went from taking this now side project, right, as you're telling us this story, and turn this into a standalone business. Well, I I knew I couldn't do it alone, and, you know, I kept getting bigger and bigger by the month in my pregnancy. So at some point, I just decided, you know what, this is going so well, and the women who are on the site are so incredible and generous that I really want, I think there's something here, and I... um, contacted an old colleague of mine at Dow Jones, Romy Newman, who had a very different skill set and background than me. She spent her whole career in sales. And, you know, I sort of just talked to her about the idea. And, you know, she was interested in it and looking for a career change. And so she joined me. And that was very key to starting the company because I didn't want to do it alone. And I knew that 
a startup would be very hard. So I didn't want to do it alone from the perspective of just having company, but I also didn't <laughs> want to do it alone from the perspective of not having, I thought, nobody knows how to do everything, you know, and is good at everything. Right. So she's very different from me in her background and her personality. And so we joined forces and that's when we decided to, you know, make this a real company. Um, I'm still amazed at how this whole thing was born while you were pregnant. And um, contrary to often VC expectations, um, your being pregnant and becoming a mother for the second time didn't at all derail the development of this new startup. How did you navigate your own pregnancy and early days postpartum? Well, I actually think that in many ways it was a blessing that I was pregnant when this happened because it allowed me the sort of mental space to pursue this idea with without any other distractions. So I was home and I had a toddler at home and I also have a nanny. So that's a very important part of the story that I think a lot of career you know, oriented women or women in the workplace just don't talk about their help because if you don't have that help, you're not going to be able to start a company. <laughs> it's going to be very, or maybe you can, but it's going to but be it's very, certainly, very hard. It's harder for sure. Yeah, because you're going to be able to only do it during nap times or after bedtime. And, you know, I had essentially structured myself to have a full-time nanny at home. And I didn't want to lose her because I thought, you know, either I'm going to get a job, another job while I was interviewing, or I'm going to start this company. And so starting the company with her help, um, you know, was was sort of amazing because I also got to see my toddler grow up a little bit. I got to be home with my baby. It was tiring, but in many ways, it was a flexible way to start the company. At what point did you wind up in an office every day? Not until last year. Actually. Really? So you were able to keep this all growing from home? Yes. <laughs> and that has its own unique challenges, working from home. But Romy and I were working in our apartments until early 2017. What was the sign for you that it was time to sign a lease and take on an office? Well, it was really hiring employees. So we actually didn't have any employees until 2017 either. And it was about 14 months ago that we hired our first full-time employee. And what was that person's job? That person's job was to spearhead editorial content. So we have we started life with just job reviews that were free and anonymous for women. And we never had career advice or other editorial content that a lot of women said that they would love to see. You're only using a job review site when you're actively looking for work, mm-hmm. typically. But after that, to come back to our site, we needed other kinds of content. And so our first hire was really editorial because women wanted to read more from, you know, the perspective of experts and and not necessarily just other women. They wanted to read career advice and profiles of other successful women. Totally understandable. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm talking with Georgine Huang, co-founder and CEO of Fairy Godboss. So, Georgine, when I went online to check out Fairy Godboss, I was amazed at the amount of information that was there. So a testimony to how that, you know, first editorial staff member um, got the ball rolling, um, including really illuminating reports um, that provide a framework and advice for understanding patterns in the workplace. How did you migrate into collecting enough data that you could actually search it and sort it to start creating these reports? So I've come from a 
finance and legal background, and I guess that helps explain a little bit the, my perspective. I also spent some time working at Bloomberg, and I, so I know the value of organizing information that's otherwise unstructured. And <laughs> we designed our job review survey to be 15 questions, a combination of structured and unstructured content. And I don't mean to be too jargony, but unstructured content just means words, right? There's no um, al- there's no alphabetical choice or um, choosing between one and five. And I knew that if you could correlate data that we were collecting from women to other data about women. So, for example, we've looked at job satisfaction as sort of the most important thing and try to analyze whether there were things related to job satisfaction. So how is maternity leave related to job satisfaction? How is job flexibility related to job satisfaction? How are um, family leave policies related to job satisfaction? And, and those were just interesting questions that I knew one day would become very important, either for monetization purposes for the business or, mm-hmm. or simply just you know to accomplish our mission, which I should which I, I should have stated earlier, is to improve the workplace for women. So if we have this data, then we can prove out why companies should improve or change their policies. And so what did you find out were the things that correlated most with job satisfaction? We found that job flexibility, so that's flexible culture, flexible hours, was mm-hmm. very important um, and seemed to correlate with job satisfaction. We found that when women took longer maternity leave, they were tended to be happier with their jobs. And when women made comments about how many other women were in management, they also tended to be happier in their jobs, meaning there was greater gender diversity in management at their companies. Why is that? Is it about a perception that women are respected and have the opportunity to advance? Or is it about the culture that women create when they're in leadership roles? I suspect that it's a little bit of both. I think when you have role models, then you think there's a chance for you, and you're more (laughs) likely to be happy when you think that there's a chance for you. I also think that when women are in management, they create a different culture. There's research that shows, not from us, but research that shows that when women are in management, they tend to, when women are managers, they tend to promote more women. And we've actually surveyed some women about this and asked, you know, when the last time you were promoted, was it a man or a woman who promoted you? And a lot of women say it was other women that promoted them, which makes me incredibly happy because I think there's a stereotype out there that, you know, women, when they work together, they can get catty or yes. un- be unsupportive of each other. And that kind sure of that queen exists, bee syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that exists. But I also... You know, our whole site is a testament to the fact that women help other women and want to help other women. Absolutely. And something that we know about that queen bee syndrome is that it happens in environments of intense scarcity. And it's almost um, a protective default behavior. And that when workplaces do have more women and make opportunities for advancement more clear, A, that's diminished. But B, it also welcomes in the many women who want to help each other. Yeah, and I think if you're not, as you point out, if you're not fighting for survival because the situation is about scarcity, then you can be yourself, which is probably, like all of us, We, I, I mean, I tend to be optimistic about human nature. You tend to try <laughs> to help people if you can. Right. We'd all like to think that's true, but I think we're also seeing increasing evidence of it, including 750,000 monthly users on your site. Yeah, we're actually crossed 1.3 this month. So oh, my God. Congratulations. We've been growing really quickly. Yes, I, I, we grew 10 times last year, and our goal is to, you know, do multiples of growth again every year. And 
eventually, I mean, our vision is to reach every woman in the workplace. And there's 73 million of us in the United States and billions in the world. So it's a large, <laughs> it's a large audience out there, I think. So at least there's no shortage of things to do. Um, one of the things that's also super, I think, impressive and important about what you're doing with Fairy Godboss isn't just the involvement of all these individual women's voices contributing and reading, but it's also there are clearly a number of organizations that you've partnered with. Talk to me about how you made that happen and what their roles are. So in the beginning, it was actually really interesting. We were not sure how we were going to make money from our site. I mean, there was Glassdoor as a precedent, and we knew that companies cared about their employer brand. But we were worried that just being for women, we might scare off some companies mm-hmm. because maybe it's a sensitive, it's a more sensitive topic in general, right? How does a company treat its women? And everyone says, "Ooh, <laughs> we're not sure, <laughs> right?" And 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 I also we, the other thing we didn't know was, you know, did you have to have enough reviews at a company before a company would be interested in supporting you? Like they would only get involved if there were enough women at their company that were, you know, champion this, championing this. And actually, we found out that companies have invested millions of dollars in gender diversity initiatives. This is something I didn't quite understand. And in many cases, their own employees don't recognize this or realize this. And we, when we approached um, HR departments about what we were doing, they sort of said, oh, yes, this is great. Now we have a way to tell our story about what we've already done for women. They didn't view this as a challenge to what they were trying to do. They viewed it as something that would amplify what they were already doing. So unlike where I have colleagues that are a little afraid of RateMyProfessor.com, the companies actually saw this as an opportunity to make visible things they'd been working hard to put into place. Well, at least the number of companies that we work with, yes. I'm sure there are some companies that are worried about it. And rightfully so. But there were many, many more companies than we thought that had already invested so much money and energy in this area, but just didn't feel like the world knew about it. And so we were, you know, we came along and they saw us as an opportunity to tell their story. And so in doing that, is it that they're underwriting you as sponsors or is there a different way that they're contributing information to the site? So everybody who signs up with our site fills out a questionnaire and that questionnaire answer some of those questions that I was looking for in my early job search. So we ask everyone to tell us their parental leave policies. We ask everyone to share what percentage of women are in management roles. We share, um, we ask everyone about job flexibility policies to the extent that they have formalized ones. And then they also get to list jobs with us. So we integrate with their applicant tracking systems and they use us as a tool to um, not only share what they've already done and profiles of successful women at their company, but they also want to recruit more qualified female talent, which is why many of them sign up to become our customers. And so this actually builds upon, you know, it apparently started out with job reviews and built into career advice. And now this is adding a really significant dimension of your place where women can actually look for jobs with women-friendly companies. That's right. And they can also, you know, sort by sort of the reviews themselves. So they can search for companies that have only gotten, you know, three out of five, we have wings instead of stars, but three out of five (laughs) wings in terms of the average job satisfaction uh, of women who've reviewed that company, or they can choose four, or they can choose five, or they can choose two. 
Um, I love the wings, by the way, as a nice, you know, nod to your fairy god boss logo, but also the idea you're giving women wings. Yeah, and we really, you know, it's a it's a name that sort of conveys the idea that women are are helping each other here, and you know, it's a little bit whimsical. Sometimes people say, "What's a fairy god boss?" And I say, "It's anybody who helps support another woman in her in their workplace and helps lift up another woman." Because we really believe that. Although men are very, very important allies and decision makers in women's careers, it's also um, not gender equality is not going to happen in the workplace without women supporting each other. And it also is a nod to both. Um, it's a feminized um, title, but at the same time, there's the strength that's recognizing this is your God boss. This is about giving you guidance and leadership. I think it's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So as you've brought these companies on, what's been your strategy to increase their engagement and their visibility for your users? Well, we are finding that women want to talk to each other much more than we initially expected. They, they literally want to have conversations with other women who've left reviews. And they also want to engage with us sort of more than um, – during the period of their job search. So mm-hmm. we had hired that editorial director to, you know, write career advice and recruit other people to write career advice for us. But they really want to, it, it's, it's like they want to have a community beyond, I mean, there's so many social media networks out there, but they want a community um, of other women to share workplace experiences with and discuss challenges and mm-hmm. whether it's negotiating something or changing their careers. They want to hear from other women in this community. They've self-selected to be part of this group and they want to interact with each other more. So what we're building this year is a way for them, some other community features that allow them to converse with each other. And this is also an interesting opportunity for companies because companies oftentimes look to us to tell them, you know, what are women talking about? What can we do to improve um, our benefits, our culture, our policies? That's not being, you know, that's not very obvious to us today. And so these conversations allow us, and, and all of this is data that we're gathering at the aggregate level can you know, help these companies with their new policies. This is, a, I think, a powerful and fascinating additional dimension to what you're building. So what you're really creating is an online networking community that's both a form of advice giving and, a, in many ways, I would think, a referral system. That's right. We'd love for women in our community to invite each other to jobs or positions that we think might be overlooked sometimes by women. I don't know if you've seen research um, that says that women are less likely to apply to a job if they don't think they're 100% qualified oh, for it. Yes. I'm sure you must have come across this. <laughs> yes. Whereas men will be more likely to do it. And we would love nothing more than women in our community to invite other women that they know to apply for jobs and positions at their companies. It would be powerful to it's certainly jumping over that gap as well as many others. We need to take a short break, but we're going to talk more with Georgine in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And my guest today is Georgine Huang, co-founder and CEO of Fairy God Boss, an online marketplace where professional women looking for jobs, career advice, and the inside scoop on companies meet employers who truly believe in gender equality. So, Georgine, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you. So before the break, you were really you were sharing with us the story of how and why you built Fairy God Boss from this side site where working moms could give each other advice to this really dynamic online center for job reviews, career advice, um, places for companies to advertise opportunities, and quite importantly, um, a place for women to network with each other. You've amassed all of this data in this process that you keep learning from. So I have a bunch of questions about that if you're game. Um, What did you learn about – we were talking before about job satisfaction, about the importance of gender equality and being reflected in the culture, of flex time. Um, But talk to me about pay. What's the role of um, pay equity in how women perceive their workplaces and in how they communicate about them? So equal pay is obviously much more in the the news cycle and in everyone's attention today than I think it was, you know, five or ten years ago, which is great. But it's very tied up with this idea of getting promoted. I mean, so it's very rare that a woman finds out just because that information is hard to come by that somebody who makes somebody makes more than her with the exact same job description and title. Sometimes it happens, but I think rarely, rarely does someone just come across that information on a fax machine, for example. Or, no, it's or really hard to find. Absolutely. So what, but what is very, very visible is when somebody who you think you're equally qualified and, uh, you know, quite frankly, as good as at work mm-hmm. gets promoted above you. That's very, very visible. And so when we asked women, what's the number one thing that will help you stay at the company that you're at or help make that decision easy? The top answer is, you know, promote more women into leadership, followed by increase my compensation. Okay. So I, and the reason I think that is, it's just because it's very hard to know whether you're getting paid the right amount, <laughs> regardless of whether you're getting paid the same as a man doing the same job as you. So that importance of seeing other women promoted into leadership roles, it's not just because it it's a reflection of a culture where you can be valued and succeed and be safe. Um, it's because that's the stand-in for financial and professional advancement when you don't have data about salaries. I think so. That's my interpretation of it. I think when you know that women are being promoted, you tend to think they're probably getting paid more as well. One would hope. Right. I mean, and the other reason I think this is because we see a lot of comments in the question where we ask women what they would tell another woman about working there, they always say you, you need to negotiate your pay aggressively up front because there's very limited opportunity to sort of increase that pay once you've started. And that could be somewhat a function of just, you know, corporate pay grades and things moving slowly at big companies. But if you don't negotiate up front very well, the sort of sense from a lot of women that we hear from is that you're not going to get that chance again, mm-hmm. as you know, as good as you're going to get it when you first start. Right. And, and also because based on the percentages of matches, what goes into your retirement, the way that increases happen over time, um, you never make up for what you lose at the moment you walk in the door. 
That's right. And particularly if you're not going to get promoted. So talk to me about pay audits. You guys have gotten some interesting information on them. Who's, what are they? Who's doing them? And how does the process unfold? I believe that they're very complicated to execute, <laughs> but that they, at a very simplistic level, you look at all, all of the employees, what their job titles are, you know, and to the extent that you have them in, in, in set pay grades, you look across all of the employees and you basically say, okay, for men and for women and for people of, with this job title, how are, how are people getting paid? And I don't think that many companies have actually undergone this process because I, because I think it's actually incredibly difficult, especially if you're a very large company, to make apples-to-apples apples comparisons across job titles. I mean, these days people's job titles really span the spectrum. What used to be, you know, a chief HR officer is now the chief people officer or the chief culture officer. Mm-hmm. And, and that problem of the labels goes all the way down, you know, the, the, the corporate hierarchy. So I think companies often invite outside consultants in to help with this. And when they, the other problem with doing it, besides it being incredibly difficult in a large project is that you're looking at something that potentially invites a lot of controversy, both internally, but also legally. I mean, if you're not paying people correctly, you have to fix it. And so once you undertake an audit, you basically are committing to fixing it. Right. So you're both undertaking a complex technical task of really sorting through all this data in a responsible way. Um, But you're also taking on Um, a legal risk and a financial risk, because you don't know what the number is going to be that you're going to need as an organization to balance these salaries when you're done with this. That's right. So I think that explains why so few companies have actually done this. I mean, Salesforce has done it. I believe SAP has done it. A lot of the banks have recently done this. Um, And they tend to share the conclusions. So they, they tend to say, we actually pay women and men fairly and equally. And, you know, we just sort of in the public read that and say, okay, well, it's good that you've done that, but, you know, we're, we're going to never really know what that really means. Right. <laughs> um, but I did notice on the site that there were a number of organizations that you're involved with that take this kind of pay reconciliation seriously. How are you finding out about it from the organizations themselves? Well, I think once they've undergone the audit, they will publish usually um, the fact that they've done it and the conclusions from it. So I know that Salesforce has gotten a lot of press about about this, and their chief um, HR person, Cindy Robbins, has spearheaded this mm-hmm. a few years ago. And they, did, and they just did it again, which shows you how technical and complicated it is. They, first they did it, but then, of course, pay changes over the next few years, right. and they had to do it again. But it also um, it shows a commitment to it. Like This may seem like a silly comparison, but I remember freshman year, we set up our, our dorm room, we cleaned it a few weeks later, and then we thought, why do we ever have to clean it again? We cleaned it in October. And then you learn. You can't do these things once. Um, that rectifying pay, it's an ongoing process that you have to be vigilant about. So kudos to Salesforce for staying on top of it and not requiring an outside organization to tell them it's overdue and time to do it again. That's right. But, you know, outside pressure has been mounting. It's been very interesting because it's coming from the investment community. I do, I, do you... Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with an organization called um, Arjuna Capital. Tell us they about them. In, 
yes, you must you must have heard of <laughs> Natasha Lamb and the work she's doing to you know get boards to take gender equality and pay equity seriously mm-hmm. and to disclose what they know. And so at least there are these organizations that are putting pressures on the pressure on the organizations to be vigilant about it. Um, but it's also, I think, for these organizations who have done it, um, it's good for women to know about it because it's a sign that they are trying to level the playing, playing field. So coming back to kind of the primary purpose of Fairy God Boss is it's a reflection of an organization where it's worth learning more. Is that yeah, fair? Think, yes. And I think what we've found is that even the companies that are considered, you know, the best for women or are rated by their employees to be great places to work know that they're not perfect. And so there is an ongoing commitment to fixing things, to always improving the percentage of women who are in management roles and on the board. And all it takes is for someone to retire, and then all of a sudden the percentage of women CEOs in the S&P 500 changes again, <laughs> right? Because there's that few to begin with. Right, and also the pay averages. Challenge. Um, so... This is you're telling the story in a way that that we can see very clearly the woman's experience as compared to the men's experience. What about people of color? What about that intersectionality and women who have a double challenge to navigate? Yes, that was a question that many of our employers actually challenged us to ask. And and for a long time, we didn't collect racial information from our job reviewers. And then we added the question optionally because you can't force people to answer that question. And we found that there were differences between women of color and Caucasian women. And, you know, it mirrors a lot of the research that has been done elsewhere, which shows that African-American women and Hispanic women tend to be less satisfied with their work um, than white women and, and Asian women. And what's the what's behind their lack of satisfaction? Is it that they're not seeing other people like them? Are they not being granted the same? Is it the same set of components? And are they just um, more intense for them? Give, give, flesh it out for me a little bit. I mean, we think so. These are all correlations. So it's really difficult to prove but I think when you're a double minority, so you're, you're not only a woman, but you're a woman of color, I think everything is harder. And actually, we found this in sort of psychographic interviews. That we've done interviews with our users to try to understand, mm-hmm. why did you share all of this information with us? And we find that the people who gravitate most to us are actually women who are marginalized in more than one way. So not, they're not just women, but they're maybe breadwinning women, or they're women with MBAs, or they're women in technology departments where they're the only ones. Those are the women who leave the most information. It's not always that they're unhappy, but they're the ones that gravitate to us the most. Because I think it's, it's this isolation of being a minority in more than one way. And so every time you're a minority in more than one way, I think everything is harder. If you're a minority in three ways, it's harder than being a minority in two ways. <laughs> so as you are mapping out, because I know that you've made a real effort this year to um, grow into t- to understanding intersectionality more, um, to understanding what's happening with sexual harassment in the workplace and the role of male allies. Um, I want to start with the intersectionality, though. What do you... What are your plans going forward to better serve this community? I think one thing is we just need to reach that more of them. I think we have a site that's generally, you know, more than two-thirds Caucasian. And while that's that may reflect some of, you know, we tend to attract sort of a professional audience mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, women that work at 
you know, Starbucks as baristas or in retail. So I think part of it is just we are talking about a pretty privileged group of women in general on the site. So we need to reach more women. And I think when we reach more women, we will become naturally more, you know, diverse in our own community. And beyond that, I think we probably need to do what we're doing is what we'd like to do is bring together women of color and give them possibly different questions if they've self-identified that way. But of course, this puts a lot of burden on the user. Right? <laughs> we're really trying to get information. You're already answering 15 questions when you come to us. So the idea of asking more is hard, but it may be well worth it if, if we can help you know, clarify the experience of women of color. Absolutely. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Georgine Huang, co-founder and CEO of Fairy Godboss. So, Georgine, as you're describing this, it's almost as if you're like a macro network or employee resource group, that in the same way that you talked about women who can see other women advancing into leadership positions, um, it lets you know, A, um, it serves as a euphemism for success. It helps you see that you could be that too. It establishes role models um, and lets you know that the culture is accepting. It sounds like Fairy Godboss is also doing that in your own way, but online, of bringing in voices and creating communities so that women can see themselves and be inspired. Um, whether it's online or it's in real life at the workplace, can you talk to me about employee resource groups and what makes them effective? Sure. We found that one of the first things a company does when it's trying to improve gender diversity is start a women's network. And and th- that makes sense, right? You're taking all the women at your company and saying, here, get together and talk about what issues and problems you have so that we can better support you. Unfortunately, many times these organizations aren't resourced very well or they're run by volunteers. Mm-hmm. And so when that happens, it can turn into the worst version of these employee resource groups for women is that you get a bunch of women together and they talk about problems and nothing ever happens. Right. And they become places to complain and it kind of um, lets the anger grow without doing anything productive to address it. Right. And, and sometimes they invite in guests or there's, you know, book discussions. But we were surprised by how many women's resource groups did tell us that they were able to change policies. And we sort of see the best versions of these as little lobbying organizations. When there is someone in management that they can go to, or if a member of management themselves is involved with employee resource group, there tends to be the ability to just make a case for changes in policies. And many of those changes in policies are actually around parental leave or or flexible working. And that was quite encouraging to see, that when women got together, if they had the right sort of sponsorship or visibility, they were able to change policies in these areas. And so is how do you go about making one a safe space so that these things can be addressed? Because I'd imagine that the employees who are coming together um, who want and need an employee resource group are also kind of nervous in their environment. Yes, and it depends on how the employee resource group is structured. If it's seen as an arm of HR trying to control the conversation, (laughs) then it's much harder to be, you know, genuine when you get together and talk about it. And some employee resource groups are not organized that way. Some employee resource groups are organized by the business unit 
were run by a business unit, and they even have business goals attached to them. So the the one that I loved that I loved hearing about was at General Motors, which is one of our partners. Mm-hmm. They have a business resource group where women are actually tasked with the problem of how to sell more cars to women. Yes, they In become like mini their... innovation. They become little innovation groups. That's right. So you have these employees and bringing them together, you know, to further a common company goal makes it less about just a group of people getting together to, you know, to complain about things that aren't aren't going well. And so even if the goal isn't that they're going to contribute to business development by giving a voice to um, their employees that would represent their potential customers and clients. Um, it sounds like a critical decision is having it not be organized by HR. So there's no perception of it being um, pacifying or kept under control by an organization, a part of the organization that's protecting the organization itself. I think that's right. Or if HR, I mean, HR usually has to be involved in some way, but if they're not the only people involved, if there's someone that's, you know, senior in management that's also leading or driving the agenda at meetings, for example, I think mm-hmm. that can make a huge difference. What about, um, to what degree should these employee resource groups be closed door versus transparent? You mean about what they talk about? Mm-hmm. I think that... You know, I've heard it's very important to have a safe space to talk about things. So to making it completely transparent is going to be tough for some for some kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. But I think if you don't bring back – it's sort of like when you have a breakout session at a conference. You can <laughs> talk about things in a smaller group and then bring back what you feel comfortable bringing back. And so I think if you're transparent after there's been some level of digestion about what's been discussed, and maybe, you know, there's a representative reporting back on behalf of other people, it's easier to be transparent. But then, and and that's very important, because you can't change policies unless you're transparent about, you know, what's bothering people. But you don't have to put names to the problem. So, for example, I know that at the New York Times, um, the women's resource group got together, talked about their feelings around the parental leave policies, which were not very good at the time, and were able to ultimately convince the management team to change them. But, you know, you had the leaders of the groups go to management as opposed to it being there, – there wasn't transparency all through throughout, <laughs> you know, in terms of who was unhappy and how this was affecting people. Right. So I think it's important because we, we – Transparency is a word that we talk about a lot that gets celebrated and bantied about. Um, and in this case, it's it's about it's a it, there's a pairing of, like you said, the safe space where um, people can speak freely to one another. And and that's one of the points of the employee resource group is to make a place where you are safe being yourself um, and then to figure out how to be transparent about the dialogue with management it sounds like, is the place where it can be impactful while still protecting the people in that room. Is that a fair way to summarize it? I think so, yes. And what about male allies in this role? So I'm sure you've seen research that says that many men think their allies are very supportive, but they don't necessarily have the same views of what the problems are that women face. So I think Male allies are incredibly important because the fact of it is that the power structure in many companies still is very male. So you need those allies in order for change to happen in many cases. 
However, um, I think there's still a long ways to go in terms of educating male allies about what it means to be an ally and what and what the problems are to begin with. So I think men in many cases assume that what troubles women is work-life balance. And that's, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that, that if we just improve work-life balance or that women just want work-life balance and... Then it's all you know, solved. It's just a biology problem. Right. Issue, right? Um, so... I think many times well-meaning men can still make the wrong decisions around what will move the needle in terms of making women at their company happier or more likely to stay simply because they assume the wrong things. So, you know, that's the first point is just like, what does it mean to be a male eye? What In what way are you supporting women? But of course, it's great to have them in the first place. And I think to some extent, training and, and more data will help. Um, we find that when we sell, it's interesting to men in HR departments about improving gender diversity. Data is very, very important. So um, you're finding that you're getting some traction with educating male allies so that they can go beyond being well-meaning, but to actually understand how to be effective. That's right. What about women who want to help be advocates for underrepresented women? Because I think there's probably a similar dynamic to those of us who have had a certain amount of privilege, but we want to embrace our responsibility of being allies for people who don't. Um, What are ways that women can also become more sensitized to these issues? I think that employee resource groups do help. If you join one, you will probably tend to hear, and one that's well represented, meaning there's a fair number of employees in it. I think that can help go a long way, just listening to other women's um, stories and experiences. I completely hear you when it comes to, um, you know, not not necessarily understanding underrepresented women or women with who have other, who are less privileged, because, you know, I've sort of worked my way up to management roles in my own career. And sometimes you forget about, you know, how much inherent flexibility, for example, comes with just being a manager Mm -hmm. versus somebody (laughs) who's rank and file or or early in their career. And you think, okay, well, I've got job flexibility, so it must not be a problem here. That's just one example from my personal experience. But I think if you hear, if you actively seek out um, groups like your employee resource group, if you even if you're a woman in, in you know, senior management, you read the reviews on our site and you see, wow, there's like a number of women here who really aren't happy with what, what's going on. You start to see that maybe that was that, that you had a different experience and that may not be representative of what's going on at the larger company. Georgine, we only have a few minutes left, but there was an important thing that you embarked on this year that I don't want to ignore, which is how you're reporting on sexual harassment and what companies are doing about it. Can you orient us to that just a little bit? Yeah, we surveyed a lot of women after some of the Me Too scandals erupted this year to try to understand how, you know, reflective um, these stories were of what was happening in the workplace. And we found that many women had experienced what they viewed to be sexual harassment, but that there was still actually quite a lot of confusion around what it is. And, you know, I think this is because I, I, I think it's partially a function of education and it's partially a function of sexual harassment just being a complicated social issue. Like, when is flirtation something that veers into sexual harassment? I think some women who are very confident say, you know, I know where the line is, and other women are not so sure. So we um, have written a number of articles trying to define what it is. We have tried to create um, 
that we even have discussion forums where women talk about sexual harassment. What, you know, is this sexual harassment? I, I don't know what to do if this happened to me. So we try to help women in our discussion forums. And um, the data really shows that women are still confused. I, I think, you know, the publicity around this helps, but it's, you know, there's definitely more to be done in this area. And if women are confused, I can only imagine how men feel. Right. Um, so as you look at what's in store for you, the next things you're going to try and conquer and make available to advance women in the workplace, what's on your short list? We'd love to reach more women of color, um, LGBTQ women, and understand their experiences. And we'd really like to connect women in our community in a more um, regular way with each other. We think that, you know, LinkedIn is obviously a great networking and tool and resource, but it's a place where you have to be very public about everything that you say. Right? <laughs> yes. so it's a place to go for thought leadership and to write articles and to show off what you know. We are trying to create a place where you can talk about things that you feel less confident about, that you don't necessarily want to put a name to. And, and so we're going to um, be launching a product that allows women to connect with each other, but allows them to also choose to be anonymous when they do. So that it really extends that kind of safe place that we've been talking about into their online world through Fairy God Boss. Right. So, Georgine, if people want to find out more about you, about Fairy God Boss, where do they go and look for information? Well, they can just come to our website. Um, everything is there. I think we're imminently reachable. <laughs> and um, we'd love to, you know, talk with any woman who wants to share her experiences. We profile women all the time and, you know, we'd just love to welcome anybody to our community. Well, Georgine, it's been an honor to welcome you to the Women at Work community. Thanks so much for making time for us today. Thank you for having me. And I'd also like to thank all of our listeners. If you have a question about something you heard about on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. And you can follow me at Laura Zarrow. I'd like to thank my trusty producer, Patty Hall, our amazing sound engineer, Dion Simkins. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 111. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great week and support each other in the process. Take care. You're listening to Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania on Sirius XM 111.